Welcome to Transcending Identity. I'm your host, Nicole Lee, and I am thrilled to be your guide on this incredible journey of self-discovery and transformation. This podcast is designed to help you connect deeper with yourself and transcend the identities, beliefs, and environments that may be holding you back from living your best life. Through insightful interviews, thought-provoking discussions, and practical advice, I speak with incredible people from around the world who share their stories of transformation, transcendence, and triumph. From entrepreneurs to spiritual teachers, athletes to activists, you'll learn how they overcame obstacles and reached new heights in their lives. I will also share my personal stories, insights, and tools along the way. By listening to this podcast, I hope you feel seen, supported, and inspired to live your best life. Thanks for spending time with me today. Your time to transcend starts now. Hi, friends. Hope you're having an amazing day. Thank you for tuning into episode eight of Transcending Identity. I'm so happy you're here. Today, my amazing guest is Julia Taylor. Now, by just the young age of seven years old, Julia had lost both of her parents and as a result was adopted by her aunt and uncle with her two older brothers. Due to this early hardship, Julia was dealing with the grief of losing her parents while also trying to discover her own identity, values, and belief systems. One of the ways she began to gain clarity of who she was and what she desired is when she discovered handball while attending college at USC Chapel Hill. Now, fast forward, Julia's been playing handball for Team USA for over 13 years now. And in 2021, she was part of the U.S. National Women's Team for North American and Caribbean Handball Confederation Women's Championships. In addition to being an elite athlete, Julia holds a master's in sociology, is bilingual in English and French, as well as working on her third and fourth languages of Spanish and Arabic, and she defines herself as an abolitionist, an anti-racist, and an intersectional feminist. With a background in nonprofit work, she's also devoting her time to making a major positive social impact in the world. During our time together, Julia shares her journey of how she navigated losing her parents, becoming an elite athlete, as well it means to her to serve as an anti-racist, abolitionist, and intersectional feminist. I hope listening to Julia's episode inspires you to discover who you are and courageously align to your passions and purpose. Hey, Julia. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. How are you? I'm doing well, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Well, I would love for you to start from the beginning of your childhood. Yeah, absolutely. So to start at the very beginning, I was born into, you know, normal family. <laughs> and one in my early childhood, my both my parents passed away. My biological parents passed away. My mom when I was three, breast cancer, and my father when I was almost seven for a variety of different reasons. And so I was actually adopted by my aunt and uncle, my my mother's brother and his wife, with my two older brothers. We were adopted by my aunt and uncle integrated into their family. They had three kids already. And so a lot of my childhood, if you will, was sort of coming to terms both with those like early tragedies and and what I had lost, you know, not being raised by my biological parents. And, and on top of that, you know, I was born in Boston. We moved down to North Carolina. So it was a lot of different factors, you know, familial, geographic, and trying to sort of find both my place within my adoptive family and also just figure out what that meant for me as an individual and how I identified myself and and who I thought I should have been because of that with, you know, reconciling that with who I became. 
So I feel like those, you know, of course, that's going to have a huge impact on, on, on my life, having, you know, such a dramatic childhood. But, but it really has shaped, even as an adult, the way that I think about myself and look at the world and, and sort of the way that I experience life, if that makes sense. Yeah. And if you could just take us on a journey, what did that look like for you? I mean, I can imagine elements of grief, not only from the loss of parents, but like you say, grieving a separation from the place that you at least knew to a new mm. new place. How did you manage that piece along with the identity formation as well, particularly with it being so you being so young? Yeah, I think there there are really like two pieces that stick out to me. And I think part of it was because I was so young. It's just, this is how they manifested to me. But the first was that I, my last name is Taylor and my uncle and aunt, their last name is Sheets. You know, that's my mother's maiden name. And so coming in as Julia Taylor into the Sheets family, I just remember that always being difficult for me to deal with. And it, it you know, in retrospect, it seems kind of silly. It's just, you know, it's just a name, but but that was the way I think I understood this life of, of me how it could have been had I grown up with my, you know, biological parents' household as a Taylor and the Taylor family, and then transplanted into the Sheets family. And, and so that was just kind of a way for me to maybe process that loss of, of what, you know, once again, what things could have been or who I could have been was through that, you know, that name. I remember just being a kid and, and sometimes people would just automatically assume that I was Julia Sheets, for example, and, and me being upset by that, even though I didn't fully understand why at the time. And then the other piece being that kind of geographical piece where, okay, I lived in Boston, who knows, had things gone differently, who knows if I would have stayed there, if I would have you know, lived out my whole life there. But because that was sort of taken away from me, so to speak, it became this sort of substitute, maybe this nostalgia around like, oh, that's my true home, so to speak. That's where I should have grown up. That's where I belong. That's what I consider to be home, even though, you know, now as an adult, I've course, come to terms with the fact that, okay, I lived in Boston for seven years and North Carolina for, you know, 20. So um, not even maybe 20 years. Um, so, so is that truly home now? But, but it was once again, just a way for me to kind of process that, that loss and understanding what home meant for me, the person, once again, just these, these questions around like who I should have been or could have been. I think because I was so young and didn't really have the opportunity to establish a really deep relationship with my parents, a lot of that grief came out in these questions of should have, would have, could have kind of questions. And how were you able to navigate that? Did you have support? Did you go to therapy? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think, you know, it was a very difficult transition, both for me and for my adoptive parents and my adoptive siblings as well. You know, it was, it was a very difficult period. But looking back, you know, I, I do think that they supported me in the best way that they could. There was, a, of course, a lot of friction at the beginning. And Honestly, even probably through high school, you know, now as an adult, I can step back and say like, wow, like, I can't believe that my aunt and uncle stepped up in this way, you know, and took on these extra kids and, you know, doubled their, their household size. But I did, you know, they, my, my adoptive family was very religious. They're, they're Christians. And so that was having that support from the church, even though it's not necessarily, you know, a faith that I embrace now as an adult, but being able to have that support from their church family and, yeah, I would say that faith in that church family was definitely something that helped us feel more welcomed. You know, we definitely felt like they, that their church family opened up their arms and accepted us immediately into them. And I did do some therapy, but more so as a young adult, but it's, it's, it's something that I'm still processing, 
years later in my 30s trying to deal with and figure out and and it is uncomfortable sometimes to talk about with with certain people you know most all of my friends and of course my partner know but i think people are hesitant to ask about it and to talk about it because they don't know you know is this okay is this like a subject that we can get into or they've just kind of accepted it over the years so sometimes i will talk about it with people in my close circle but a lot of times it's because i bring it up you know i can understand that there's that you know, maybe that level of discomfort talking about something that can be so heavy and traumatic, you don't really know that, you know, what, what I might be feeling. So a lot of that support, yeah, came from those more formal avenues. And I was just thinking about what you said about the discomfort or awkwardness sometimes we have in wanting to engage in conversations that are important and can also create challenges of us being able to overcome because I would sense on the other side for you, knowing that discomfort, you may be withholding some of the things that you want to express and work through with people close to you. Is that something you've had to navigate? Yeah, that's a good question. I think part of it is you've lived in the South for an eternity now too. You know that people are are a lot more apt to talk about, you know, the small talk kind of subjects and really getting into like the meat of let's talk about our childhood traumas. <laughs> it doesn't really happen as much, you know, I think it's, of course, my, my partner, he's worked in the, in the mental health space. So that's been huge. He's without, you know, treating us as my therapist, he's allowed me this space to kind of process a lot of things that I'm, especially as I'm becoming an adult and getting to the age where like, okay, this is how old my mom was when she, you know, got diagnosed with cancer or when she started having kids, you know, and understanding just really coming to terms with that as an adult, he's been a great just space holder for me and, and person that I can sort of just talk things out through. And yeah, I think it is, to, to be perfectly honest, it is kind of difficult to talk about with friends, especially friends that I've known for years, because they just sort of accept it as a given, you know, that, oh yeah, of course, like, yeah, I've always known this about her. That's just who she is. And maybe they just assume that, you know, things are fully healed or if I want to talk about it, I can, and I'm sure that I could, but it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's not necessarily something that I talk about a ton with maybe that closer friend group. And it's beautiful that you have a partner that has served as an outlet. Are there other things that you do that's helped you navigate this journey you're on from that healing aspect? Yeah, I have, especially as an adult, I've gotten more into the meditation space and and things like visualization and relaxation therapy and those kinds of things more so on my own or or you know I'll use apps or you know online health resources but but it has been just to kind of allow me to slow down and and allow myself to process these things and and I think a lot of right after the adoption happened right after we moved to North Carolina and moved in with our adoptive family so much of it was just you know we just just plowing through, you know, they were trying to get us settled, get us into schools, you know, have us adapt to their way of life and, you know, now going to church and a lot of things where it was like, it was survival mode, you know, and even as a young adult, when I was surviving and thriving and whatnot, I didn't allow myself to take that time and to just stop and feel those feelings. And so it's, it's coming back now in full force. And so as in my, my early thirties now being able to allow myself the space and the time to to grieve and, and do things like meditation and allowing myself to like when those moments come of you know especially as i get older in the relationship with my biological brothers deepens and changes and whatnot we become a lot more real with each other and i feel like finally you know in my early 30s i can finally ask them like what do you remember about mom and dad or, or ask my aunts who are my mom's sisters like can you tell me more about 
your relationship with them. Whereas before, I think once again, it's just this like, you know, we're in survival mode, just trying to get through every day. So there's not that space to slow down and, and process and heal. Man, space and time. Sometimes like the capacity to be able to even navigate life because things mm. be so overwhelming. We don't even have the capacity to get deeper because we're just trying to make things happen day to day with all the things that were going on and being in survival mode. At what point did you start to connect your identity? I think for myself as, as for a lot of, you know, young Americans, it, it was when I went off to college, you know, it, it gave me once again, the space <laughs> to have a little bit of separation. I went to university of North Carolina. So I was half an hour down the road from, from my, family, but it felt like a world away, you know, and it felt like I could kind of maybe start to deconstruct who they had formed me to be and who I allowed myself to be formed to be, you know, and, and start to figure out who I wanted to be independently from them, you know, and I think especially in high school, you know, as, as a teenager, that's when a lot of us start to rebel or to push against those, you know, those boundaries that our parents set and whatnot and figure out who we really are. And, and so being able to define myself and I figure out my identity outside of that, just like reactionary, you know, I'm a teenager, I'm going to rebel. I'm not going to listen to my parents, you know, being in college and just meeting people from all these different backgrounds and, and meeting other people who also had these crazy traumatic childhood events, who lost parents, who felt like they missed connections with parents who were adopted, those kinds of things. That was the first, my first experience in figuring out, creating, constructing this identity of myself independently of what happened to me as a kid. And that is also at Carolina is actually where I, where I got into team handball. I was recruited to play for the team at University of North Carolina. I played basketball and softball, ran track in high school, and I decided not to pursue athletics in college actually for a multitude of reasons. And so go to Carolina and then all of a sudden being recruited to play this sport, it was like, oh, wasn't expecting this, was not planning on this to happen, but like, I'll give it a try and see where it goes and started playing. You know, I'd, I'd never played team handball before, but that's sort of the case with this sport. You know, it's pretty, it's not very developed in the US. So a great athlete can pick it up and, and learn it pretty quickly. And so I was recruited to play for this team. And I remember within like the first, maybe first or second semester of me playing, the national team reached out to me and recruited me for a junior national team trip. And that just sort of led me into this whole new path of, okay, this, this sport, I fell in love with it. There's so many, there are so many opportunities available to me. I can go and play all over the world, travel to these incredible places, all for this sport, represents, you know, Team USA. And it just, open up this whole other world of possibilities for me. And, and with that, this like whole other way of me finding fulfillment and figuring out who I was and, and being then this, this elite athlete as like this new piece and constructing this identity of who I wanted to be. And I will say when you share with me about handball, I think I had a whole different view <laughs> of what handball was. So for those who may still be thinking like, oh yeah, I know handball. Let's let's talk a little bit about what handball is, Julia. <laughs> like let's let's get people up to speed yeah. with this amazing sport. <laughs> if you think you know what a handball is, you probably don't. <laughs> so it was invented as an off-season sport for soccer. So you like take soccer and you use your hands instead of your feet inside on a court that's a little bit bigger than a basketball court. Kind of like water polo on land or like hockey on a court. You know, you can think of all these different 
these fast paced, high scoring sports. And it's, that's what handball is pretty much. So you're on this court, this inside court, you have a soccer goal at each end. That's maybe about like the third of a size of a soccer goal. And you have six offensive players on each side and then a goalkeeper on each side. And you go head to head. <laughs> you're playing offense and defense. You're running up and down the court, kind of like basketball. It's pretty high contact, pretty high scoring. It's really, really fun. It's huge in Latin America, Europe, Asia, pretty much anywhere but the US. So Olympic sports, you can YouTube it. There's tons of great clips. <laughs> you being American, going into a sport that's not as common in America, what drew you into that interest out of all the sports you were playing? What was it that said, ooh, I'm, I'm going to go in this direction? This is, this is my thing. Yeah, good question. I guess the fact that it's not as big in America is both a blessing and a curse, you know, a curse because it means that you have to leave the U.S. if you want to play at a high level. But that's also sort of on the flip side. The blessing of it is that, okay, I got to go to some amazing places. You know, it's it's what took me to to France. I ended up living in just outside of Paris, France for seven years. And it was handball that brought me there initially, you know, wanting to play in the French professional leagues and see how I could stack up and compete against the best in Europe. And so there was that piece to it of just like, wow, like I've, I've been able to go to 30 something countries to compete and be able to play in foreign leagues and, and go all over the world for the sport and, and meet so many players that come from such unique backgrounds. And then of course the sport itself is just so much fun. It's just a blast. <laughs> Talk about endless possibilities. Did you learn French before you went to France or did you learn when you got there? Does like elementary school French count as learning? A little taste <laughs> of it counts anywhere as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I'm making up my own rules here. So there you go. Okay. Well, then, yes. <laughs> I mean, I studied, I did, I took French classes in like high school, but I actually took Spanish and Arabic in college. So going to, you know, to France was, was a little overwhelming, but, but I wanted to go and get that full global experience, you know, not just show up and be like, oh, the American on the team who we have to translate everything. And, you know, so I enrolled in full-time language courses right when I got there for a few months. And I actually also enrolled in a master's program right off the bat, pretty much. And the languages, the courses were taught in French. I mean, it was a master's of sociology. And I thought that that would be a good way for me to learn the language as well. And I struggled. <laughs> I struggled so much. It was so hard. But yeah, I mean, it helped me to learn language so fast. Like I was, I was going to classes and just like sitting through these lectures and just pure struggling, like taking notes, writing down like one in every seven words and recording them and then going back home at night. And, you know, after practice, listening to the lectures again and trying to fill them in, listening to them two, three times, trying to fill in those stupid words. And it was terrible. Like I would, you know, finish the week with headaches every single week, but I learned it so fast. It was really, really helped me to just immerse myself. So you not only played a sport, you were in school at the same time yes. while also learning a language. Yes. <laughs> Help me understand how, how you were able to navigate all of that. Hmm. I wish I knew because I think about it now and I'm like, gosh, I have three things on my agenda today. I'm going to die. <laughs> I think it's when you're in your twenties, you know, the world, it just seems, you know, you feel invincible. You have this unending source of energy that I wish I still had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was, I think a lot of just, just maybe that drive of wanting to not only wanting to do something, but wanting to do it well and excel in it. And I do, that's something that I, I credit a lot with actually my, my adoptive parents is, you know, they would always tell us if, 
something as stupid as like doing the dishes or like making my bed. You know, I remember my mom always being like, do everything to the best of your ability and just hating that as a kid. You know, like, <laughs> just don't listen. But you know, seeing as an adult, like, okay, I felt that drive. I want to crush it. I want to, you know, graduate with honors and be able to write a thesis at the end. And I want to be able to becoming starting player on this team. And I want to still win the division. And I want to be, you know, go to the Pan American games with team USA and one day go to the Olympics. So just, I guess that drive of wanting to just crush it (laughs) and help you find that energy. Can we talk a little bit about that? Like what was your journey as an athlete starting in handball in college and now being an elite athlete for as long as you have been, how have you been able to navigate that journey so effectively? Yeah. Once again, just the fact that it was so unexpected made it that much more exciting. You know, I, I know a lot of, from the friends that I have that were collegiate athletes, they, they, by the time they get to college and they're playing in their sports, they're like burnt out from it. You know, it's mm. start to maybe even hate their sport a little bit, you know, it's, it's tiring. And so being able to be at the beginning of my athletic journey as a 20 year old is, I mean, that was, that was so exciting. And so to kind of start from the beginning, I started playing at Carolina and was immediately funneled into the national team, larger pool of athletes, if you will. And I graduated from Carolina. And um, at that time, the home of USA Team Handball was actually in Auburn, Alabama. They had a partnership with Auburn University. So most of the team moved to Alabama and was training full time together. So I decided to go down there. And that was like my first taste of like, okay, this is what it means to be a part of a national team. You know, it's it's different from the collegiate experience. It's different than because you're not just, you know, you're, you're not just playing or getting ready for next week's game or, or, you know, the championship at the end of the season, but you have these like goals that are four years long, you know, in four years, we will do this in eight years. we will do this. So it's this much more like a long view of, of things and a much broader vision of, of what, you know, we can take longer to prepare. We can, our training cycle can be kind of a slow burn rather than like, okay, we have two months to whip ourselves into shape mm. during preseason before the season starts kind of thing, you know? So those two years that I was living in Alabama, I, I felt like I just learned a ton about what it meant to be just a next level athlete, you know, to be an athlete who aspires to go to the Olympics. And then I started to get antsy. <laughs> Believe it or not, there's not a lot in Auburn, Alabama besides the University. Besides that, so, I mean, all I think about is football. So to know that handball is also part of the Alabama spirit is good to know. Yeah, it was. It's no longer there, sadly. Oh, bummer. (laughs) Yeah. So I think at that, you know, after maybe like a year and a half, I just started getting antsy to get out of Alabama. And then also just like, okay, now I have this fire going. Like the U.S. is not the play. You know, I'm I'm one of the best players in the U.S., but am I as good as I think I am? You know, Mm. this 23-year-old who, you know, so I started talking with my, my coach of the national team at the time, who was French Canadian. And he was like, France is, is the place that you should go to, to try if you want to play in the European leagues, you know, there's, it, it's like the number one uh, women's sport in Europe. So, so I could have gone anywhere and initially I wanted to go to Spain, but France is one of the best leagues. They have the most money or one of the countries with the most money for the sport. So he set me up with a bunch of teams outside of Paris. And I spent a few months, you know, trying out and just like getting my handed to me it was so humbling like coming from the u.s and thinking that i'm like this hot shot you know i'm the best at i got you know most valuable player in college i got this i got you know top score at xyz tournament and then going to france and just like getting my butt kicked and it was even more frustrating because in terms of pure athleticism 
um, Americans have a lot of, of French athletes beat. So feeling like understanding that I was a better athlete and having better, you know, testing metrics in terms of endurance and jump and speed and things like that. But then just like getting my butt kicked on the court, you know, Interesting. was so humbling. <laughs> and so I, I ended up signing my first contract with a team just outside of, of Paris. And I re-signed with them. I ended up staying with this team, what, four or five seasons. And the first year I, I like hardly played. Like I was dressing for maybe one in every three games. I played probably grand total of like 20 minutes that first season. And it was so frustrating because once again, there's this aspect of like, I know who I'm, you know, I'm supposed to be good. Why aren't I showing up here? Yeah. You know? I'm elite, but I'm on the bench. Exactly. Exactly. And, and it took a lot of both, like, it was, it was humbling. You know, it took a lot of me like, okay, I'm, I'm not as good as I thought I was. So I got to work harder. And so I would add in strength and conditioning sessions, you know, outside of what the team workouts were. And I was, you know, taking opportunities in the off season, our, our national team would get together. And so just work, 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 work during the off season. And I ended up being able to finally gain that starting spot with the, with the team. And we ended up moving up a division and it was great. And then I went on with the national team and we had some great results up through this last quad, this last four year period of competing up until COVID. And, and I think a lot of it was just like seeing where I wanted to be and, and, constantly failing, you know, not qualifying for this event, not starting for this team, not even playing for this team. That just like pushed me, pushed me, pushed me. Like, this is not, I'm not happy just sitting on the bench. Okay, cool. I signed a contract, but I'm not playing. Like, I'm not happy with that. I'm not content with that. And using that as like a driving force, that failure of every time we failed or we lost or we whatever, like feeling it, allowing myself to really feel it and using it as fuel for the next, next competition, next team, next contract, next whatever. You embraced the failure to fuel you. Yes, definitely. It sounds like too, Julie, you have an innate drive. Like there's just something innate in you that wants to keep getting back up again, even when you feel like you've gotten knocked down. Do you feel like you've always had that since you were a child or did you come into that? That's a good question. I think I've always, one might say that I was a difficult child. <laughs> um, had a lot of fire, pretty stubborn. And I think that it, it caused a lot of problems. Yeah, when I was a kid, you know, just, just being so like hard-headed and just resistant to authority and, and just maybe kind of difficult and finally learning how to channel that, more healthy channels, you know, mm -hmm. rather than seeing like, okay, anger at the world for losing my parents, learning how to take a, a, an emotion like anger about not qualifying or about not being good enough to play. And like, how do I channel that into this workout? How do I channel that into like overcoming that feeling of like, I just don't feel like getting after it today. So in that sense, yes, like I've, I've always had maybe that kind of fire, but, but it, I definitely had to learn how to channel it properly. And that's powerful because things that you even mentioned, kids being considered hard-headed or difficult or resistant, et cetera, there are elements of that when we embrace it and channel it differently that it sounds like when you got in alignment with how that could work for you is how you got to be the elite athlete that you are. And I think that's a powerful message for us to hear because so many, I mean, even myself as a child, I think of things of being seen too sensitive and it's my superpower, mm, you know? Yeah. And so it was more of the environments that weren't serving me than that 
thing or that attribute of me that wasn't serving me. And it sounds like even for you, venturing off to college and finding yourself literally separating from an environment allowed you to figure out what that fuel was or your superpower. So it worked for good and not, you know, evil per se quotes. (laughs) And this is amazing that, you know, you're more than just an athlete. So I appreciate you sharing that part of your world and how you were able to, to use that fuel to become who you are from an athlete perspective. But you're more than that. You do a lot of nonprofit work and you consider yourself an abolitionist, an anti-racist, an intersectional feminist. I would love to know more about what that means to you. Yeah, definitely. I think, first of all, I love what you were saying about, you know, our superpower. I, I do think a lot of the things that we, you know, I'm, I'm hearing that you, you know, the fact that you were sensitive as a child was maybe something that you struggled with, but then later owned. And, and I definitely feel like that was the case on my end, you know, having that like being thought of as like the angry, the angry child in the family or the difficult child in the family, like owning that and being able to use that productively. And once again, the power of just environment to helping us grow and assume new identities. So, so I just, I love the way that you, the way that you put that. But yeah, I think that in terms of this, this sort of activist aspect of my identity that, that I've adopted is I've just always been very empathetic in general to, to suffering and, and oppression and just hurt overall. And I think it really started in middle school is, is we actually, I recently figured out the source of this. I can pinpoint an exact moment in time. It was middle school. We had to read a book called Roll Thunder, Hear My Cry. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. I have heard of that book. I may have read it at some point too. Like a classic (laughs) middle school English class book, you know, but, but anyways, it follows the story of this, this black family in what maybe the sometime in the 20th century. (laughs) And I just remember being so touched by that and so like drawn into the oppression that they felt as this black family who was still, you know, having to years after, you know, the abolition of slavery, still dealing with the implications and the repercussions of that. And then just like realizing that that is something that exists today, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the fact that I was so maybe the early childhood loss, you know, has made me a lot more sensitive to, to people's pain and suffering, but that was sort of the way that I focused my energies and that, that sort of type of empathy was on this more social justice type of Avenue, you know? And, and so I, that's one of the reasons why I ended up doing a master's in sociology is I wanted to really understand why there were so many injustices in the world, you know, beyond just, you know, it's, it's so much deeper than like, Oh, there are these bad people that want to do better. you know, right. there, there, so many systemic and institutional layers to it that I wanted to understand. And so, so doing that master's in sociology really just opened up and I think helped me verbalize a lot of what I had seen or understood, you know, maybe without consciously knowing what the words were for it. So I do, I consider myself an anti-racist, you know, I, I believe that there is more to combating racism than just words or just condemning racism. You know, you have to be actively anti-racist. And, you know, as a woman, of course, I've, I've always been a feminist, but being an intersectional feminist is understanding that not everyone's experience of being a woman or experiencing sexism is the same. You know, there's so many different layers to all of our identities that intersect. And so your experience as a black woman is going to be different than my experience as a white woman, you know? And so the way that we have experienced sexism is going to be so much different in the way that, you know, we can't just do the traditional white feminist way of, of fighting sexism, you know, it doesn't take into account class or race or, or 
sexual identity or a myriad of other different aspects of, of one's identity. And so for me, that was very important to understand that, that way of, of being a feminist. And then of course the abolitionist piece is, is just being, you know, wanting to abolish all those systems, those oppressive systems that start with capitalism. That's, you know, the, the prison system, the justice system is just abolishing it all and allowing us the space to create a more just society. So I don't have the answers for everything, but I do feel like, you know, having those labels has helped me know where to direct, you know, my own research and my own deconstruction of, of biases within myself and, and finding people to ally with and organizations to give time and energy to. So, so that's a big reason of why, you know, I do consider it a part of my identity. And I'm curious, particularly as it relates to feminists, because it's come up quite a bit over the past few years, and there's been a lot of negative connotation tied to mm. it. I'm curious about how you define yourself as a feminist, what it looks like to you. Good question. <laughs> I think a lot of it has been learning how to decenter my voice and my experience as a white woman, specific, a white woman from an upper middle class background who is cisgender, you know, like learning to decenter my voice as the feminist or the female experience, you know, because it has been the center of the feminist movement for so many decades and learning and, and trying to create the space for people who don't fit into that very specific niche of womanhood. To go into spaces where you may come up against intense opposition takes a lot of courage. I'm curious how you stand in that courage. What about you says that I'm willing to move forward with this? I'm willing to take it on because it could be easier just for you to shed those identities. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily see it as courage. You know, this is this is because it is something that I can shed, you know, like I can stop posting or, or getting involved with, you know, local initiatives or organizations or whatnot. I, I have that that privilege of being able to shed that. So I, I think it's a lot more courageous of people who do live those experiences to have to get up and, and, and deal with that every single day. You know, I think even the the hate or the maybe confrontations that I've experienced because of those labels is so minor compared to the oppression that that people who are racialized or people of color in general or or transgender people or people from you know lower socioeconomic statuses there's just once again i think my privileges have given me such a a bubble of safety that it's i i it's also what pushes me forward you know like because i have the possibility of shedding those identities that means i have even more the responsibility to keep pushing forward i appreciate your perspective around honoring those who don't have that choice I also recognize that having the choice and still deciding not to take the easy route is courage. Yeah. And so I just wanted to honor you in that moment, deciding not to dim your light, deciding not to shut down your voice, deciding to be on the front lines is courage in my opinion, but that's just my opinion. Yeah. Before we close, if there's anything you'd like to share for anyone that is going through the ebbs and flows of their evolution of who they are, their identity and their experiences. 
I would say that that evolution should be continuous and that sometimes I think we, especially when we're younger, we have this idea of our goal, our end goal, who we want to be, what we want our lives to look like, what we want things to become, you know, but not forgetting that the journey in and of itself is is where we are, is the present moment and that we should be open to that evolution and that it should be a lifelong process, you know, because when I was in high school and I thought about going to Carolina, what my life would look like after Carolina and then it taking a totally different direction and becoming a Team USA athlete that was never on my radar and allowing myself to be open to that evolution and that change and, and divert a little bit from what I wanted to be or who I thought I was going to be. And then again, as I'm nearing the end of my career, being not having this idea of I need to be this afterwards, I need to do this afterwards, but being open and being willing to keep that evolution going and keep discovering new things about myself and my identity. Because I think, yeah, that's, that's, that is going to happen all along our lives. And some might say that even, even the, the purpose of life is to continue to self-discover. <laughs> being on that ever-evolving journey. Julia, I'm so grateful for all that you've shared, your vulnerability, your courage, your story. I know that someone's going to listen to this and feel seen, heard, and inspired to continue to live their best life and be their most authentic selves. So I thank you for your time and what you've shared today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on, Nicole. This is great. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this episode enriched your life. If so, please leave a review, subscribe, and share this episode with others. Let's continue to grow together, transcend to new heights, and create a life that truly reflects who we are. I'll see you soon on another episode of Transcending Identity. Transcending Identity.